I loved the emotional rush of being scared. I still do, of course. I don't go out much to haunted houses, but I still love good, old-fashioned, scary stories. Listener discretion is advised. So far in our investigation, we've discussed four victims and the nights each of them vanished from southwest Fort Worth. Catherine Davis was last seen alive in late September of 1984. Cindy Heller was abducted not quite a month later, and Sarah Koshka was taken in late December. Those three women's bodies were all found the first month of 1985. Angie Ebert also disappeared in December of 1984 and was still missing when we left off. Her purse was found not far from where Cindy Heller's car was discovered abandoned with its interior burned. If you haven't listened to the first three episodes, go ahead and push pause here and go back to listen and get caught up. Although we didn't directly call them out, some important clues show up as we describe each case. My colleagues and I want to give you the opportunity to be aware of each of those details as we reason through who could be and who most likely isn't responsible for these murders. There are three additional cases we believe are likely connected to these four, but we haven't discussed those just yet. We'll get to them soon. We already have a theory about a likely suspect, and we think it's important for you to know what we know about him before we walk you through those three remaining cases. We acknowledge that our theory could be wrong. Our prime suspect may not have been involved at all. Or he could have committed some of these murders, and someone else or several people could have carried out the others. After all, We're talking about seven separate homicides. What are the odds that one person successfully avoided being seen while killing that many women? On the other hand, if it was indeed one man, someone who was caught the night he murdered one woman and was later linked through DNA to two other cold cases, could he have caused even more devastation than we're suggesting? there are more unsolved murders that fit into the time period he was living in Fort Worth. At least three more of those cases, not including the three we're still going to talk about, have made us wonder if he could have killed them too. But before we dig into that, we want to fill you in on who some of the other suspects were early in the investigation, and who realistically could still be considered a suspect in these cases. This includes several of the serial killers who were stalking North Texas women in the mid-1980s. I mean, we only found six, but that doesn't mean that there weren't more. The opening statement, Weiss County District Attorney Pat Morris told the jury, this is not going to be a pleasant experience. You're going to see and hear things that are not going to be very nice. Ricky Lee Green was 28 when he was arrested on April 27, 1989 after his wife Sharon contacted Fort Worth police and said she could no longer live with her husband's secrets. She said she was afraid of him, and she wanted to report three murders he committed in 1985 and a fourth in 1986. 
The victims were two women and two men. I think he was programmed from the time he was a child to be a killer. That's Patricia Springer talking. Patricia was a newspaper and radio reporter in the 80s. Patricia's interest in Green was piqued when a friend asked her if she thought Green could have been responsible for a different murder, her friend's daughter, Wendy Robinson. Patricia interviewed Green extensively when he was on death row and later wrote a book about his murders. Green denied killing Wendy, and another man was connected to Wendy's murder in Weatherford, Texas, just west of Fort Worth. We interviewed Patricia because she got to know Green well before he was executed. She believes abuse he endured as a child created the monster he became. His father attempted to kill him three times during his youth. Um, and I asked him one time why he didn't um, kill his dad instead of killing all those people. And, and a typical abusive person's response was, oh, I couldn't kill him. He was too strong. He was too mighty um, because their abusers are so much bigger than life. Um, he was also sexually abused by his grandfather. Um, his mother didn't protect him. Uh, but just all of the incidents of child abuse that he went through, both sexually and physically, um, really he couldn't turn out to be anything different than he is. It was the 1986 murder of Stephen Pfefferman that sent Green to death row. According to trial documents, Pfefferman was found in his East Fort Worth apartment, bound to the post of his bed with neckties. He had been castrated and stabbed several times. That crime mirrored Green's first known killing. In 1985, Green stabbed and castrated a 16-year-old boy, Jeffrey Davis. Green dumped his body in a wetland in the northwest part of the city. Sandra Bailey and Betty Jo Monroe also fell victim to Green. Green picked up both women, Sandra at a bar, and Betty Jo while hitchhiking, and lured them to his trailer home. Both women's bodies were found days later, discarded, raped, and mutilated. After Green's conviction in 1990, Sharon Green stood trial the following year for her involvement in the women's murders. She received a 10-year probated sentence as part of a plea deal for turning in her husband. Could Ricky Lee Green also be responsible for any of our seven cold cases? Patricia Springer thinks so. Oh, absolutely. I, I do believe that he is responsible for other murders. But trying to get the evidence is, is not possible right now. Patricia said none of Green's DNA was saved. After his... Um, execution, I took custody of the body. I had promised him that I would bury him. Uh, he did not want to be buried at the Pulper's site in Huntsville. Huntsville is the prison that houses Texas's execution chamber. And um, I had contacted authorities and had a state trooper there to take his DNA in order that it could be preserved to see if any other crimes could have been solved. Unfortunately, they told me they lost the DNA. Green and his then-wife, Sharon, had a daughter together. Because Green's daughter shares some of his DNA, she could help investigators determine if he did commit other murders, if sufficient evidence is available for a DNA comparison. We talked to the daughter of another known killer. 
knowing that there may be other victims out there, um, what would you say to those families? I would tell them that I'm very sorry that they had to come into the last room of my father. And that he was married, very manipulative and a horrible man. And I'm truly sorry for my father's wrongdoings to them. That's Lisa Only, the daughter of convicted rapist and murderer Lucky Lamont Odom. Odom abandoned Lisa and her mother before Lisa was old enough to develop any memories of her father. But she also asked a lot of questions as she was growing up, and along the way, she learned who her father was. Lisa graciously agreed to talk with us. Um, I was born in 1979. I do know him and my mother met in San Antonio when she was working at a, as a waitress on the Riverwalk. Um, they moved in fairly quickly together, and my mother did say that he roamed around a lot, would be gone for weeks at time, weeks at a time, like no communication with him whatsoever, um, and then he would just pop up, pop up out of the blue, um, and a lot of the times either he was in jail or he was probably out there doing what he was doing. I'm almost certain that there are other women out there. She means other women he probably killed. A custodian picking up trash near an elementary school playground in 1982 discovered the partially nude body of 23-year-old Catherine Monroe. She had been raped and strangled less than 100 yards from the duplex where she was living while studying to be a doctor. She was in her second year at the Texas College of Osteopathic Medicine in Fort Worth. Fortunately, samples of Catherine's blood, vaginal swabs, and her panties were well-preserved. Years later, federal funding helped establish a nationwide database of DNA profiles, including those of convicted felons. The database, called the Combined DNA Index System, or CODIS for short, has changed the game for cold case investigators. In 2007, Lucky Odom was close to being released from prison after a burglary conviction in Florida, when evidence from Catherine Monroe's Fort Worth murder returned a match in CODIS. Investigators were excited, but they don't rely on one match in CODIS to move forward with an arrest. They go back and get fresh DNA from the suspect, and send it to an independent lab to see if the match is confirmed. In this case, bingo. Here's retired Fort Worth cold case detective Manny Reyes again. Uh, he too got caught with uh, DNA, but he also uh, did a lot of killings in uh, Austin and Tucson and tried to kill some people in Alaska. Uh, he got arrested in a bunch of states, and I finally found him and arrested him in Florida. He did not stop killing. When he got arrested, he was trying to break into a girl's room in Florida. That's what they got him for, so he never stopped. But he actually lived here in Fort Worth in the early 80s, had a wife and child here. After her father was convicted in 2009 for the murder of Catherine Monroe, Lisa began to get a better understanding of who he really was. But I do feel inclined to get as much information on my father as I can. 
so I know what type of man that he was. All the information I know is from my mom, my grandfather, my grandfather's ex-wife, and from Detective Manny Reyes, and then what I see online. And so I feel all the information that is given to me is beneficial because he is my father, and that gives me an insight to who he was and where I come from. Manny Reyes told Lisa she and her mother were fortunate that Odom left them. I don't know what possessed him to not ever harm my mother, per se, um, but my mother did say that they, um, she, they were in a hotel room. She said I was very young. Um, she said that he had given her something to drink, and she woke up. I wasn't there. He wasn't there. She couldn't find me. Um, she remembered that he was with a young woman and a man within days, you know, prior of this incident happening and remembered where they lived. So she says she walked all the way there and I was there and that he had tried to sell me to these people um, as a small child, baby, actually, I was a baby. After his conviction for the murder of Catherine Monroe, Odom served nine years in prison before dying of brain cancer in 2018. It's possible Lucky Odom could have committed one of the seven cold cases we're discussing in this podcast, but he never confessed to any of them, and it's difficult to track his exact whereabouts while he was free. We know he was in Fort Worth in 1982 when he murdered Catherine Monroe, and we know he would occasionally drop in on Lisa and her mother while they lived in Fort Worth for a few years. But he roamed the country. We found various arrest records for Odom spanning the last few decades. But many of Odom's crimes happened before some police departments even had computers, long before the Internet, even longer before smartphones could track your location and merchants could trace transactions. Virtual footprints are all but invisible from that time period. It's easy to come to a town and not tell anybody who you are and hang out for two, three days and not let anybody, nobody's going to know who you are. And unless you get a ticket or the police are called and they identify you, you're not going to leave any record behind that you were here. It's like when you go on vacation, unless you use your credit card, if you go on vacation, so you just pick a place and you pay cash when you get there. Uh, and you put down whatever name you want to on the card, stay there two or three days and then leave. If you didn't put your real name down, nobody will ever know that you were there unless you tell someone. And there's no way of tracking them when they don't leave some sort of paper trail behind or something that somebody identified them. When Odom was transferred to Fort Worth to be tried for the murder of Catherine Monroe, police did attempt to match his fingerprints and DNA to preserved evidence from several other 1980s cold cases. Nothing hit. But as the science around DNA evolves, that could change. Even though Odom has since died, Lisa said she's willing to provide her own DNA for future testing. I'm not ashamed of where I come from, but I am ashamed of the man who he was and who he became. I feel that there is so much left about my father to be discovered. And I'm willing to do whatever it takes um, to help families heal and to get answers. He has passed away, and hopefully that would give potential victims and their families peace knowing that he's no longer walking this earth to hurt other people. 
So now we have two men, one a confirmed serial killer and the other a convicted murderer and rapist who police believe killed more women hanging around Fort Worth in the mid-1980s. Unfortunately, there were more like them. Imagine Fort Worth as a mature-for-its-age young adult. It wears Wrangler jeans and cowboy hats and talks with a drawl. It says yes, ma'am, and no, sir, and courteously pulls over when an ambulance needs to pass. Arlington, Texas, could be Fort Worth's teenage sibling, just to the east, but in the same county. Arlington was raised to be respectful, too, but it seems to be of a different generation, with a lot more energy and an extreme interest in sports and entertainment. The Texas Rangers play in Arlington. In 2009, the Dallas Cowboys began playing there, too. Arlington has the largest population of any suburb in the entire Dallas-Fort Worth area and was the birthplace of the now worldwide chain of Six Flags theme parks. From here, you can be in downtown Dallas in less than 30 minutes. It's also less than 15 minutes from the Wedgwood area in southwest Fort Worth, where Angie Ewart and Sarah Koshka were last seen alive in December of 1984. Just six months after those young women disappeared, Arlington was also the location of a different gruesome murder scene. Yes, sir. It just isn't any question that uh, this has changed everybody's thinking in the neighborhood. In fact, some people have left the neighborhood. Others have begun to lock their doors. All in the wake of yesterday's brutal murders of 14-year-old Danielle Lemire, her 12-year-old sister Renee, and their house guest, 17-year-old John Bradley. On June 17, 1985, a Monday, Joanne Lemire, who often worked double shifts as a supervisor at a telephone answering service, drove away from her Arlington duplex toward work at about 7.30 a.m., leaving her two teenage daughters and a house guest home alone. School was out for the summer, and Joanne had invited John Paul Bradley to stay with them for a while. She and her daughters had met John at church, and he needed a place to crash. He had been having problems at home, and another family in the church had already told him that he couldn't stay with them any longer. Joanne came home from work at about 10.15 that night. In the first frantic minutes, after she found the body of her youngest daughter, bound and bloodied on the bathroom floor, and her older daughter, violated, nude, and now lifeless in the master bedroom, John seemed like the obvious suspect to police. That was before they found his body under a pile of laundry near the washer and dryer almost two hours later. The first triple homicide in Arlington's history left authorities baffled. There were no signs of forced entry. All three teens had been bound with their hands behind their backs, each found in a different part of the home. Both Danielle and Renee were partially clothed from the waist down, leading investigators to suspect sexual assault as the motive. Later, investigators determined Danielle, the oldest, had indeed been raped. A month later, police reported that they had a suspect. Although Arlington police believe they have developed a solid suspect in this case, they caution there may not be an arrest right away. Police say this investigation has been very complicated right from the beginning, and police want to be sure that when they do arrest somebody, they arrest the right person. That suspect was Ronald Stephen Tromboli, a 40-year-old married man and father who lived just down the street from the Lemire home. He knew the Lemire family 
and his stepdaughter was a close friend of the youngest Lemire girl. Both families had recently moved from the same apartment complex to this quiet street. The Lemire family moved there first, and the Tremboli family followed them. Tremboli's attorneys portrayed him as a family man, too burdened caring for a newborn baby and a bad run of financial luck to spend time sexually obsessing over the older Lemire girl, as prosecutors asserted in his trial. His defense team said he didn't have the time or attention to plan and carry out a triple murder. Nothing in Troboli's past hinted he might murder three teenagers, especially a friend of his stepdaughter's. But he did have a criminal record dating back more than a decade that had followed him all the way from his home state of New Jersey. He was even on probation for previous crimes, which was revoked after the murders because he had been arrested again for criminal mischief in an unrelated case. Palm prints and fingerprints belonging to Tremboli were found on the appliances near John Bradley's body, and semen that matched his blood type was found near Danielle. But it took three trials to get a conviction. The first trial ended abruptly because of juror misconduct. The second trial ended in a hung jury. But by the time his third trial came around four years later, DNA science had advanced and the evidence prosecutors had was far more damning. Without doubt, Tremboli's biggest hurdle is the result of DNA fingerprinting, genetic tests that match Tremboli's DNA with DNA in a semen stain found on the bed near Danielle's body. State experts say the chance of that stain coming from anyone other than the defendant is only one in 54 billion. Tremboli was sentenced to three life terms on April 25, 1989. Despite the overwhelming DNA evidence, including later DNA testing that confirmed he had sexually violated Danielle, his family maintains his innocence. Technically, for someone to commit serial murder, there has to be a break of time, a cooling-off period, if you will, between each murder. A triple homicide doesn't fit that definition. But one of our sources told us police were hoping a man in prison who was dying of hepatitis C would give a deathbed confession about his involvement in at least one of the murders we've discussed. Tremboli died of hep C in prison. And Tremboli's apparent attraction to young girls was hard for us to dismiss as we researched known killers from this time period. Is it possible that Sarah Koshka, who was only 15 when she was abducted and stabbed to death just six months before the Lemire murders, caught Tremboli's eye? He was an out-of-work chef who must have been proficient with a knife. It's certainly possible. This is retired Detective Manny Reyes again. I think, at least, that, yes, there's a very good possibility that some of those females were victims of a serial killer that either lived, lived here or moved on or just passing by. Because we had one, Juan Segundo, he lived in Fort Worth, and when he finally stopped his spree, he moved out of Fort Worth and moved down to a Cleaver. Juan Meza Segundo, a small-framed and soft-spoken man, might be the most prolific serial killer in the history of North Texas. He was arrested on April 19, 2005. DNA evidence had linked him to the 1986 rape and murder of 11-year-old Vanessa Villa. After his arrest, more DNA hits linked him to seven other homicides in Tarrant County. 
when Segundo moved from Tarrant County in the late 1990s to the small Johnson County town of Cleburne, Texas, just south of Fort Worth, his urge to kill either settled down or was contained to his new home county. Really, for a serial killer to one day just completely 100% stop, it is possible. But to me, I think it's highly unlikely. They may slow down, they may slack off for a while, but the urge is still in there somewhere that they got to do it again. Just as his last known murder may not have been the end of killing for Segundo, it's possible that 11-year-old Vanessa wasn't his first victim either. His ex-wife testified that he came home one night in 1983 covered in blood. She said she looked inside his car and found a woman's purse and panties hidden under the seat. Another woman testified that Segundo had molested her years earlier, before she was old enough for kindergarten. Vanessa lived in Fort Worth with her mother, a baby sister, and her brother. At the time, Segundo was 23 and a friend of Vanessa's family. Vanessa, whose first language was Spanish, struggled with English. But she worked hard in school and was well-liked by her teachers and school staff. On Sunday, August 3, 1986, Vanessa had gone to a Dallas flea market with her mother. When the family returned home, Vanessa said she wasn't hungry for dinner and instead went to her room to listen to music. Three cousins were asleep in another room and Vanessa's mother and siblings had gone to run errands when Segundo stood on an overturned five-gallon bucket outside her window, pushed aside a box fan, and crawled into the bedroom Vanessa shared with her mother. When the family returned from running errands, it was Vanessa's mother who found the young girl lying exposed on the bed and unresponsive. Vanessa had been strangled. She died not long after arriving at the hospital. On August 10th, the following Sunday, the family held a wake for Vanessa at their home, and Segundo joined the mourners. Vanessa's family never suspected Segundo could have been her killer. Experts divide serial killing into two general types, organized and disorganized. An organized killer brings everything he needs to complete the murder. A disorganized killer improvises. Even Juan Segundo, you know, he planned, okay, this is what I'm going to do, this is how I'm going to do this. And he prepared ahead of time for his, for his attacks. His was take all his clothes off outside, go inside naked, ready for what he's going to do, and not take any chance of leaving any clothing behind. So that's a plan. I mean, it sounds weird and kinky and everything else, but if you look at it from a detective side, it's, this guy planned this out perfectly. If you don't take any clothing in, you're not going to leave any behind. So if you don't leave any behind, you're not leaving evidence behind. Plus, you're also eliminating the time that it will take for you to get naked to do what you're going to do. So it's a weird plan, but if you look at it on his side, it's actually a pretty good plan. He prepared for what he was going to do before he did it. 
Segundo was sentenced to death on February 15, 2007, for killing Vanessa. By then, police knew he had also killed two other women in the 1990s. He was scheduled to die by lethal injection in 2018, but he received a stay of execution. His lawyers called into question his mental abilities. As of February 2021, he is still on death row. So, is it possible that in late 1984, a month or so shy of turning 22, Juan Segundo abducted and killed Angie Ewart and Sarah Koshka? It's possible, but we don't think it's likely. Segundo typically entered the home of sleeping victims. The element of surprise probably gave him the advantage he needed, considering his slight build. We also want to go ahead and tell you who was arrested early in the investigations of the murders we're focusing on. In the last episode, we mentioned some of the other mysteries that were frustrating Fort Worth police in 1984, around the same time our four cold cases occurred. One of those agonizing thorns was the unsolved murder of 18-year-old college freshman Ginger Lynn Hayden. Ginger's mother found her in her bedroom early on a Wednesday morning in September. Ginger's alarm clock was blaring, and her mother went in her room to see why she hadn't turned it off. To her horror, Ginger's mother found a room in total disorder, and her daughter's bloodied and lifeless body crumpled by the bed. She'd been stabbed 57 times. The murder occurred here at the village apartments at 4700 Wellesley on Fort Worth's west side. Police and the FBI suspected that her killer was someone she knew. Could it be just a coincidence that one of her neighbors, Remsen Newbold Wolf, had recently been indicted for molesting a very young boy and had also been the subject of a tip to police about the murders of Angie Ewart and Sarah Koshka? This neighbor also drove a pickup that matched the description of the truck seen parked behind Angie's car the night she disappeared. Some news accounts connected Wolf with a series of rapes on the city's west side and with cases of murdered and missing women in Fort Worth. But police said right from the start last night that Wolf was being held in connection with one count of sexual assault and nothing else. Remsen Wolf grew up in New York, the very definition of privileged. He had traveled the world with his wealthy parents. His father was a prominent neurosurgeon author, and his mother was a renowned artist. He attended Exeter Academy in New Hampshire where he excelled as a cross-country runner. He graduated from Harvard University in 1964. It kind of makes you scratch your head that someone with that background would later, as a divorced father and freelance photographer with no known paying work, choose to move to Fort Worth, Texas of all places. In January of 1985, after getting a tip that this 44-year-old man who has already been indicted for child molestation has photographs of area rape victims and murdered women in his apartment, police took action. That tip was passed along to police by a TV news reporter, but his source for the tip was a private investigator who had encountered Wolf during his work. The investigator earnestly believed that Remsen Wolf was the man police were looking for. The night Wolf was arrested, police conducted an extensive search of his apartment and seized several binders filled with Polaroids. None of the photos found incriminated Wolf. Eventually, police released Wolf, who later sued the TV news station for defamation. 
the molestation case against Wolf was later dropped because evidence in the case was somehow lost. Wolf moved back to New York, where he lived off inheritance money while continuing to travel the world, trying to make a name for himself as a photographer. After Wolf died in 1998, his protege has worked to bring attention to Wolf's collection of photography. He has primarily found success in Europe. Another neighbor of the stabbing victim was convicted in 2012 after DNA evidence linked him to her murder. Ginger had apparently spurned Ryland Shane Absalon's advances, and prosecutors say he flew into a violent rage. Now, we want to briefly touch on two other possible suspects for the unsolved murders we've been discussing. I want to be clear, though. We don't think it's likely that either of these men was involved. Farian Wardrop is on death row for the murders of five women he killed between 1984 and 1986, including Deborah Taylor on March 24, 1985, in Fort Worth, less than three months after Sarah Koshka was abducted and murdered. Wardrop's four other murders took place near the city of Wichita Falls, about 100 miles to the northwest. Before Deborah's murder was solved, her case was included in the investigations conducted by the Fort Worth Police Department's 1985 task force. Killing Deborah appears to have been an anomaly for Wardrop. He had traveled to Fort Worth to look for work when he met her. All his other victims lived near or in Wichita Falls. But it's not out of the realm of possibility that Wardrop chose other victims in Fort Worth besides Deborah Taylor. And finally, there's Sam Chin III, a man who was serving a life sentence in New York State for the murders of two Syracuse women when, in 2005, he was linked through DNA to the 1989 murder of an elderly Fort Worth woman. Chin had been working as a handyman in Fort Worth at the time she was killed. His known New York murders happened in 1995, but Chin had also lived in or traveled through California and Illinois. He hasn't been associated with any other Tarrant County homicides, and he remains in a New York prison, serving a life sentence without the possibility of parole. So now we have four more convicted murderers to add to our list of potential suspects. Ron Tromboli, Juan Segundo, Farian Wardrop, and Sam Chin can join Ricky Green and Lucky Odom as known predators who were active at the time. While we believe we have good reason to rule them out, it's possible any of them could be guilty. This will conclude the episode. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please leave a comment and subscribe. Thank you.